uh, nice to have you out today and uh, enjoying the sunshine this week, right? <laughs> I was thinking our talks of uh, the psalm there, talks of weeping in the night and joy in the morning. And um, you know, we've had such good weather the last few days. It's, I don't know if you remember Monday, there was a thunderstorms and wind and everything, right? But uh, we, we, we moved past that and we, we focus on the, the good weather that we've been enjoying. We are continuing our sermon series, uh, Return to Eden. And uh, let me see, two weeks ago... Or we had uh, Earth Day. I don't know if you remember that um, or did anything special uh, for, for Earth Day. I saw here in Greece, the, I think it was on Friday, the town supervisor declared it Arbor Day um, and suggested everybody go out and plant a tree. He wasn't giving away trees for us to plant, but, uh, <laughs> and he didn't give us a whole lot of notice, but, you know... <laughs> Uh, that was his suggestion for celebrating Arbor Day. Uh, and so I, I kind of had it scheduled that uh, I was like, oh, well, Earth Day, that really fits with Garden of Eden and what we're talking about. Uh, but then uh, we had Compassion Sunday last week, and so that also fit. And so we, I focused on that in the message. And today I want to come back, circle back around, and look at this theme of, of Earth Day or creation. Uh, what do, how do we interact with creation? I think it's significant as we open the pages of Scripture at the very beginning that God is a, uh, after he has created, he then assumes the role of gardener. He firstly makes the entire world and then makes or crafts a garden. And, and it's not just about the beauty of the garden. It's also a place where he puts uh, the first man and woman and provides for them. It, it provides safety. It provides uh, food and, and water. It has rivers there. You know, so they, their, their basic fundamental needs for life are met in this garden that God uh, puts there for them or, or makes for them. Um, and, and then in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we see there that the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And, and so the, the first responsibility given to humanity, the first instruction after creation was to care for the garden. Even if we go back to chapter 1, which uh, is a more powerful, uh, an account of creation focused more on God's power, uh, we see there that he creates the, uh, mankind and then says to them, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, sometimes I think we take that idea of rule over and we think, oh, that means I can do whatever I want. But uh, God's definition of ruling is never one of exploitation. 
Uh, we, we have only to think of what Jesus says about the greatest, right? The greatest of all is the servant of all. And, and so ruling and, and, and even God's example of him as the, the greatest ruler is always an example of serving. So to rule creation is to serve creation, or as he says in chapter 2, to work it and take care of it. And so it is the original responsibility of humanity. It's interesting also that as soon as God has created humanity, he then gives them work. Sometimes, right, we think my ideal world if I was in the Garden of Eden, I'd just be sitting around all day, swimming in the waterhole, eating good food, you know, like enjoying myself, hanging out with my friends. I would be a, a, a person of leisure, right? climbing trees, swinging on vines, you know, whatever it is. And yet God, when he created, he says, well, now I've got something for you to do. Work, productivity, um, purpose has been part of creation from the beginning. So creation is good when it's at, at, at the start. And what we see is then that uh, creation isn't just a, a space that is made for humans to occupy. But creation as a whole is part of God's purpose that God puts care into its design, into its existence. And then, I mean, if you think about it, it, I mean, you don't have to think too hard. It's a symbiotic relationship, right? He puts humans there and says, now care for it. And at the same time, we need the clean air, the clean water, the fruit, the, the, the food, the whatever it is, to, in order to survive. And so it cares for us. In that sense, I want to uh, read from Psalm 104 because here we see is that God uh, continues to care for his creation. He doesn't just make the world, make the environment, uh, and, and establish it in Genesis 1 and 2 and then step away, at, at least. And, and so I understand that the Psalms are poetry. Okay, and so they're, they're taking some, uh, some liberties with their explanation of how things work. But uh, I do have it up there. <clears throat> and, and so the psalmist says this about how the creatures, the animals, continue to relate to God. He says, All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. And, and so God in this psalm is pictured as continuing to feed 
and care for creation. He holds out his hand and the animals come and eat from it. Likewise, when he withdraws his hand, they suffer and struggle. The book of Isaiah, and I, I don't have any other passages of Scripture up. That was the longest one, so I made slides for that. But in Isaiah chapter uh, 44, I'm just going to read a couple of verses here, verses 21 and 22. He says, Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, and you are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And then he says, Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory to Israel. We could go back and look at Psalm 148, a similar idea, or the song that we sang earlier. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Right? Let the heavens praise his name. And so this idea that praising God for his goodness is not limited to humans. That creation also has this sort of relationship with God. And, and, and I, I think uh, I, I heard somebody this week, and they were complaining about a rooster in the neighborhood. And they're like, the rooster doesn't just go, doesn't just go off, right? It doesn't just crow at, at sunrise. It's crowing during the night, and it's keeping me awake. I heard someone else, they were complaining. I don't know, it was a week for complaining, I guess, but uh, someone else complaining about a neighbor that had a bird feeder apparently too close to this person's bedroom window. And he's like, those birds are making all sorts of racket at the bird feeder in the morning. They're waking me up too early. And, and, and so what these people are hearing is just noise, and maybe you relate to that. The psalmist says, is creation praising God? But creation's goodness came to a screeching halt, didn't it? In Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that uh, God, Adam and Eve have eaten from the forbidden fruit. Uh, they must leave the garden. And um, what, one of the things I think that we, we might overlook a lot of the time is we think that God cursed Adam and Eve. But in fact, Adam and Eve are the only people there that he doesn't curse. He curses firstly the serpent in um, verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you've tempted or led them into temptation, he says, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. And, and continues on. So the, the serpent is the first creature who is cursed. And, and then no one else, I mean, there are consequences for their sin. Don't get me wrong. Um, but then it's not until we get down to verse 17 where uh, God says to, well, he says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So that it is the ground that is cursed, that Adam now has to live within this cursed environment. 
And, and it goes on to say, this is going to be difficult. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will uh, eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. Uh, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So Adam and Eve now live in this environment where the animals and the ground itself has been cursed. But they, uh, and so they experience the effects of that curse, but it hasn't been placed upon them uh, themselves. And, and so we continue to live within this environment that has been cursed. That is not the way that God designed it. But it's not the same as saying that all of humanity is cursed and therefore carries this you know, stain or with us, uh, passed down from generation to generation. Instead, we live within a cursed world. And so, one of the things we see then is that in, in this initial, um, in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, is that the actions of humanity have an impact upon the world that we live in. Uh, just as in, in the Isaiah passage where we read there, it said, God has restored Israel. And because God has done this for the nation, for the people of Israel, creation is going to sing and praise God. And so there's this interaction between the way that humans choose to live and the impact on the world around us. Uh, I think we can see examples of that uh, very easily at the moment when we think of of war, right? Um, that the effects of war, certainly we see cities destroyed and buildings knocked down and, and people losing their lives. But in the midst of all that, we might see contamination of water sources. We might see um, forests or fields that are being destroyed. The, 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 the landscape is not left unmarked as the uh, people commit violence against each other. And, and so, uh, particularly if you get into chemical warfare or you get into, uh, you know, God for, forbid, into nuclear warfare, then, then the impact on the world is very significant. But it's not, and, and so sin continues to injure creation. I think of another example is greed. Right? I want to show you a picture here. This is a, a town in my home state um, of Tasmania. And those hills look like they're in a desert. Right? But they're not. They're actually on the doorstep of a world heritage area that's been set aside. It can't have anything constructed in it because uh, of its natural beauty and value. And, and it's miles of temperate it's about a third of the state, and it's um, temperate rainforest and uh, beautiful rivers and, and thick trees and, and grasslands. But at this town, there was mining and logging. And so first there was the logging, and, and it took, the, took down the bigger trees and took topsoil with them uh, as, as people were, were um, just clearing the, the hills. And, and then the rain came, and there was more erosion. They're fairly steep hills. 
And, and so it, it just took a lot of the soil, uh, washed down into the bay, into the river, clogged that up as well. Uh, and so it wasn't just the land that was impacted, it was the water. And, and then uh, that after the logging, or, or at the same time as the logging, there was also copper mining that was taking place. And, and the process of, of mining the copper, there were chemicals that leached into the soil, uh, leached up into the soil. And so between the erosion of the topsoil and the, the chemicals, uh, it's almost impossible to, to grow anything significant on those hills now. So, so we see the earth suffering. And why is it suffering? It's suffering because of the sin of greed. Right? Now, it's not that copper mining is wrong or that logging is wrong, but uh, that they're, in a sense, resources that God has given us. But when we, when, when we act in a way where... Uh, dollars drive our decisions and, and we're um, not at all concerned for what happens uh, to, to the world or to the environment or to, to other things, other uh, dominoes that might fall. And this is the result. This was in the early uh, 1900s. So they, they didn't have you know, the awareness perhaps that we have uh, today. But nonetheless, you don't have to be a genius to notice that the environment is uh, struggling <laughs> as you... Uh, as industry carries out. And, and there, there, I could have drawn all sorts of numerous examples, couldn't I, where industry and the pursuit of riches have uh, caused environmental disasters. So sin continues not just to hurt ourselves, but to hurt the world that we live in. We need to, to be aware, I, I read... From Psalm 104, where God continues to feed uh, the animals. But we, we see likewise in uh, Jesus, as in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wants to tell people, he says, hey, don't worry. Right? And we, we walk away with that. That's, a, that's the message. Just, I don't want you to worry. But the reason he says don't worry is because Jesus says God continues to feed the sparrows, to feed the birds. And if God feeds the birds, which he just takes as everybody accepts, everybody knows, God feeds the birds. And so if you believe that, which everybody does, then you should draw comfort from that because God will also feed you. And, and we could come, that's in uh, Matthew 6, verse 25. Come over to Matthew 10, verse 29. There, there Jesus uses this similar example. He says, God knows when a sparrow dies. And if God is aware of that and God cares about that, he also is going to care about you. And so God, the, the, certainly the main point there is that God cares about us. But in order to demonstrate that God cares about us, Jesus says, you, you know how God cares about creation. And, and sometimes I think we miss that, right? Sometimes we think that, oh, well, God cares about us. And that's why he's given us creation. But actually, God cares about creation and has given us one of those responsibilities of also caring about creation. I told you that these threads that run through Scripture always run through Jesus. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
we have this, it's just a small comment to, to describe Jesus. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, verse 17. I'll say verse 16. It says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. For if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And so what we see is that Christ brings new creation. That that through Jesus, we have this opportunity to start over, to to, uh, repair the damage that has been done. It's not just a new humanity. It's a new creation. Jesus, um, in Jesus' resurrection, we see what this new creation looks like. Because he has this physical body as he lives in in the earth, as he eats, as he moves around and interacts with his disciples. And, and yet, um, he's able to appear in the middle of a room. There's some things the same, some things that are different. But Jesus doesn't float away as a spirit uh, to, to another world. When we come then through to the... Oh, well, I want to share... Actually, I want to share here as well Colossians. Um, we read this earlier. Um, and the key verse... Here is in verse 16. Well, I'll read in 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. And and I want you to think about that because it's not just us that were created for Jesus. All things were created through Him. And for him. And, and, and I think it's an interesting to ponder what does it mean that things are created for Jesus? Certainly it means that they're there for him to rule over. I think it means they're there for him to die for, to redeem, uh, to, to rectify and repair. Um, but they're also created for him. I think... Um, to, to care for, right? Because again, that idea of he is the firstborn over all creation. We think rule, I can do whatever I want. But we need to, to think rule, I need to care for and maintain. And, and so we see that creation is, has this relationship with Jesus. And Jesus himself ushers in a new creation. When we get to the end of the Bible in Revelation. We have this picture of what's described as the new heaven and the new earth. And it's interesting that before that, you know, Revelation, of course, has a lot of different images, and I'm not going to go into all of those descriptions uh, today. But one of the things that happens is the writer is trying to 
to show um, how bad the world can get and how, um, what judgment might look like, what appropriate justice might look like given the state of the world. He describes really in, I'm looking at chapter 16 of Revelation, he describes acts of uncreation. That, that God starts pulling back the things that he's created. Uh, and so there's a series of bowls that, are, that angels pour out onto the earth. And the first bowl is the bowl of disease. Okay? As God takes health. The, the second bowl, the, the sea turns to blood. And, and what that means is, is not necessarily, you know, it turns red and literally if you took a chemical test that would show up as blood, but that it is not water, that, that the fish, that the sea becomes dead. And then it's not just the sea next, it's the rivers, the fresh water that turns to blood. The, the creation, the, the, the oceans and the rivers and the creatures that live within them are being destroyed. The sun firstly scorches the earth with the next bowl, and then the next thing is darkness, like it burns itself out. It's returned to the earth as they're returned back to the original state of creation, right? At the very beginning where there was no light. And then rivers dry up. There's huge earthquakes and land shifts and then destructive hailstones. And so all of this, as it pours on, is, is this uncreation of the world because of the, the sinfulness of humanity. So, the good news is that that's not the end of the story. You see, I think that that's often the way we think it's going to end, that it starts off perfect and it deteriorates until it reaches a point where the planet just sort of self-destructs. But when we get to Revelation chapter 22, really you could begin in 21, but... In 22, we see that there's this new creation that we, we referenced before, that Jesus introduced, that it comes to fulfillment. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on one side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. That's that return to Eden, right? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. And what may surprise us is not that this scene describes something that is where, where people have gone up to heaven, but in chapter 21, that, that heaven, that God's residence has come down to earth, that he has recreated the earth, repopulated it, put in beautiful rivers, established the tree of life back in the center of his, of his city where he now lives with humanity. And so history concludes not with the uncreation, of chapter 16, but with the recreation of the new heaven and the new earth. So where do we fit in to all of this? 
In my experience, I've, uh, when I've heard Christians talking about the environment, it's often been critical of the environmental movement. Um, that many of those people, they'll say they value, you know, I don't know, weeds over human lives. Um, that they value insects over quality of life. Uh, and 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 they, they'll look at extreme examples and, and say, you know, I think these environmentalists would be happier if there weren't any people on the planet. Right? And things along those lines. And, and so there's been a, a separation between what it means to be a Christian and what it means to care for the environment. When we've looked at ethics of Christians. We look at our behaviors towards one another, but we don't very often ask ourselves, what about our behaviors towards creation or towards the world that we live in? What responsibilities do we have? If we want to speak out against injustice to, I don't know, child immigrants or something, uh, that seems like it's a, a good thing to do, but if we want to speak out because of an environmental disaster, then maybe that's not the role of the church. Your experience may be different, okay? but that's where I'm coming from. And so where do we fit in? I, b- I believe that Christians and churches are stewards of creation. That God, at the very beginning, said, this is your role. Now, I get that living in a city, we get detached from creation in, in many ways. And I'm not suggesting that it's better that God wants Christians to live out in the countryside, that he wants Christians to be farmers, you know, the, that he, he wants you know, rural churches are somehow better than urban churches or rural people are better than urban people. I'm not going there at all. But nonetheless, Christians and churches are to care about the environment, to be stewards of creation. That creation is not just there for our consumption. And, and so part of that means that we live sustainably. Not just because our kids came home from school and they've got a project about recycling. And so, okay, we'll start recycling because the teacher will be mad at you if we don't. Right? It's not a science fair project. We, we live sustainably, whether it's be recycling, whether it be what we purchase, how we purchase, how much we purchase, because God's given us the responsibility to live sustainably, to care for things, to care where things come from and how they're produced. In this way, we live in a manner that we love our neighbors, that we're considerate of others, we're considerate of the working conditions in which uh, our food or clothing or produce, uh, products are produced. But we're also considerate of future generations. As we say, what impact is my consumption going to have down the road? I think one of the things we do is we grieve the extinction of species around the planet. Not just because, oh, a you know, a, a furry little critter that's so cute in the pictures is gone. 
but because we see the extension of species as acts of uncreation against God. And I think perhaps one of the reasons that Christians have been so critical of the environmental movement is we might say it's like they worship creation. And doesn't Paul himself talk about these people who worship creation rather than the creator? But I think that is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Because I think we have this obligation to always look for God in and through creation. The creation reveals God. Now, creation can be violent at times, right? Creation can be destructive. We took up a collection last week where half of it is being dedicated to disaster relief. Disaster from what? Nature. Hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, you know, those folks will be there cooking meals for the people and providing uh, for for the people impacted by creation. So we recognize that creation these days is under the curse. But at the same time, we look for the goodness of God in creation. And often that means slowing down. And whether it means slowing down in an urban environment and still observing the birds that live there, the squirrels that play in the trees, the, the gardens, the, the flowers that pop up in unexpected places, the parks that we're able to find, or if it means going somewhere more, more remote and sitting on the edge of a lake, enjoying the sunshine, whatever it might be, to, to say, I'm going to incorporate time with God in nature because God reveals himself in that manner. Because all of creation was made through Jesus and for Jesus. And so I love that we have a community garden here at Lawson Road. To me, it it is a way of us saying, we understand this connection between God and dirt. Okay, That that God um, created all of the plants. That God God is a gardener. And that we join with Him in gardening, in caring, for our environment and caring for our world. And Jesus has so many. Um, Jesus himself wasn't a, a gardener, wasn't a farmer, but I, I guarantee that his house had a garden, right? that they grew things. And, and all the parables that he has, it was an agrarian society. They, they depended upon what they were able to grow in order to, to eat and live and survive. And so the parables of, of plants and birds that he tells, he was familiar with them. And so we connect. And and you see our new banner out the front this morning. Lawson Road, a place to grow. I think this imagery of the way nature works, the way God works, is something that we can apply to our lives as well. That we're always growing, maturing, learning more, understanding more, living better, living closer to what God wants us to be. It's what God intends for each of us. So always looking for God in and through creation. Let me close by reading again Colossians 1, 15 through 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him 
and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together.